Coming up next, the book inning reads, Who's Antonia? My. Antonia. Or I guess her dad's. of the Booking. My name is Nathan Arbison. I'm your humble and obedient host, and I am joined again for, I believe, episode 56 by my good friends. The first one of them, well, he's the S who's a B of R. The scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right. You were looking very puzzled by <laughs> yeah. that uh, the acronym. I was still at Son of a Sea Biscuit. You're so. still at Son of a Sea Biscuit. <laughs> You'll remember, folks, last time, I, last time, previously on the booking, I called Brandon a Son of a Sea Biscuit. And, um, titles keep growing. The titles keep growing. What did we originally call you? The PhD ABD. You're the PhD ABD, the scholar who's a ball of reading, and a regular old Son of a Sea Biscuit. That's right. And the contextual Texan. That's right. And probably other things that I'm not even thinking. Probably. I myself am just a humble and obedient host. The humblest. And most obedient. That's true. Brennan? Yes. Why don't you enter? Let's, 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 let's do this. Okay. For some reason. Why don't you introduce the other guy? I won't even say who he is. <laughs> you, you won't? I'm well, just the other guy. Just the other guy. Well, no, I'm, I'm trying to give Brandon the privilege. If I say who you is, then it, if I say who he is, <laughs> well, then it ain't much for Brandon to say who you is. But sitting right here on my left... My left, right? Yeah. My left. Right. Right. Is Jacob Mensel, the pastor who's a master of reading. Hi, Jake. Hi, Brandon. Now make some completely pointless small talk with him. You know how it works. You've seen me do this now 50, oh, like 55 uh. times. Find something to ask him about. His He's wearing a, he's wearing a Darth Vader t-shirt. Maybe You're, you're wearing a Darth Vader t-shirt. Jake. I am. It's more like a an imperial... Something because there's stormtroopers on it too. Yeah, I didn't see those at first. It's like an uh, Escher drawing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, That's pretty cool. That is cool. <laughs> how, never how do you feel about that new Han Solo movie? I have no idea. Yeah. I'm not good at this. Let me show you how it's done. And sitting over there, we've got the pastor who's a master of reading. His name is Jacob Menzel. He's wearing a Darth Vader t shirt. Jake, you love Star Wars? <laughs> I like Star Wars. Who's All your right. favorite Star Wars character? Is it Darth Vader? Is that where you were in the shirt? I'm wearing this shirt because I went to the pool today, and this is a random T-shirt. I thought you were wearing it to make a statement. Afraid not, but I do enjoy Star Wars, yes. And your favorite character is... Ooh. Yikes. Clone Wars Anakin. <laughs> That is, it's like if I asked you what your favorite Beatles song was, then you named like a deep cut from the anthology or something like that. <laughs> My favorite Bob Dylan song is The Basement Bootleg Part 3. <laughs> All right, let's get back into my Antonio. Oh, we promised last episode that we would read our popsicle jokes. We had some patriotic popsicles. If you don't remember how those tie in, you can listen to last episode. Who wants to go first? Who has the least disappointing popsicle joke? Mine's a riddle. Mine's pretty disappointing. All right, I haven't read mine yet, but we'll assume it's great. So we'll go from Brandon, Jake, Nathan, I guess. What stays in a corner but goes around the world? What stays in a corner but goes around the world? Uh A child who's being punished in an airplane that's traveling around the world. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. That's a clever response. Jake, what stays in the corner but travels around the world? I was going to say a book. An atlas. Nope. Uh, Do I have to tell you? Yeah. Or do we leave it burning? I would do that to What's the trick with the word corner? It has to do with where it's located on something. Where the corner is located? No, where the object is located. Because it's physically located in the corner, but it goes around the world. A Station. boxer? No. In a spaceship? No. <laughs> no. Thinking too weird. <laughs> a yo yo! No. no. <laughs> That's in a corner. <laughs> no. What? Think sheet of paper. A uh, newspaper. No. Think mailman. A package. Close. <laughs> what helps a package get around the world? It has to have something in the corner. A stamp. A stamp. Oh. 
Boo. <laughs> I hate that riddle. That's a dumb riddle. And the Popsicle Company and you. Uh, <laughs> and me. <laughs> yeah. Jake? How do you make a handkerchief dance? Oh, I know the answer to this. <laughs> Elliot told me this one. <laughs> <laughs> so it must be a quality. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but how do you make a handkerchief dance? Does it something with snot? I don't know. What is it? Put, close. You put a little boogie in it. Oh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> So I said gross when I read it. I hate that joke. The Popsicle Company and you now. (laughs) I hate everything associated with that joke. Oh, come on. I'm sorry, guys. I just read mine. Read it out loud. You guys aren't... Where did the elephant store its suitcase? In his uh, nose. Yeah. In his his ears. (laughs) In its elephant car. Do you have a guess, Brandon? Uh, uh, his tail. Yeah, in its tail. <laughs> I'm breaking this stupid popsicle stick. Um, guys, let's do some donor shout-outs. Jake, you want to help Brandon out today? They can get a double digital stereo. They can get some stereo here. Sure. Uh, let's shout it out to John. John! Let's shout it out to... Beth. Beth! Beth! <laughs> <laughs> Let's shout it out to the lovebirds, ja- Eric and Catherine. The Eric and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <clears throat> The lovebirds, Eric and Catherine. And a very mysterious shout out for Mr. X. Mr. Mr. X. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Mr. X. Jake. Yes, Nathan. What were you saying last episode about the bride that got thrown to the wolves? Context. I happen to know from something or other that I read that that was a a short story that she incorporated. Oh, really? Yeah, so she had already published it as a short story, I think, in her mag- the magazine she was an editor of. That's not about a surprise. Pavel and Peter? I think it was just meant to add. I, and I think it worked. Just more color and flavor. It's set up with this, like... We don't know anything about these people, and nobody shares a language with them. We named them Pavel and Peter because we couldn't figure out what their names were or something like that was early on, right? And then as more immigrants come in, you know, they're able to finally, like, have people that they can talk to, and they start to get a little bit more, and then by the end, we get their story. She definitely sews up the ends of all of the characters that she wants you to care about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she gives you the epilogue. Everything, we know what happened to... Tiny, we know what happened to Alina. We know what happened to... Except for Grandpa and Grandma just die off. He just that disappeared. Kind of, yeah, that's weird. right. It was weird. We, we even know what happens deaths, to right. his teacher, his beloved... What's that? We don't get their deaths, do we? No, we no. don't We don't even get like... I mean, all she would have had to do was say like, and in 18, whatever, whatever, Grandpa and Grandma and We died. know that Otto and Jake just disappear. I which was Otto a, and Jake. One letter back. Epilogue, yeah. yeah. Well, I do think that she deals a lot with, I guess, two things. One, the transience of life. The fact that people pass in and out. And yeah. So you'll have these characters that will come in and then they'll just be gone. And um, that happens quite a bit. Like, do we really get the end of the story for the family? Is it the Hingerts or something like that? I don't really get the end of their story, do we? The, which family? The, that she is with at first. Oh, the, the Harlings? Harlings? Yeah, Francis. the Harlings. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we do. We do. I think we find out that, like, Francis ends up owning and running everything or something and yeah none of the women get married in this thing except for antonia that's interesting well she yeah she deals with the transients and then she also deals with the i guess it has to do with the last past the incommunicable past Mm -hmm. but also if your past is incommunicable then everybody's past is incommunicable Mm -hmm. and there's this sadness about the fact that you can never really know someone and so he never really knows her father he just has he has glimpses of who he was Mm -hmm. he knows he was in the old world he had a life and he played the violin and was successful and then he comes over here and kills himself and so that flavors how he interprets him Mm -hmm. so he wants him to be this nostalgic sentimental figure and so he makes him out that way and then he further like deepens the nostalgia by going and visiting the village that they're from and Goes to Prague and... Okay, that makes a little argument for Jim being a bit of a creeper right there, I guess. But, I'm um, beginning to think that my little gray cells are going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The gash in Mr. His head matched the axe. What if Jim was the killer? Jim Ooh. killed Mr. Shimmerdai? Yeah. 
Those little gray cells are working on This book is like a confessional from... <laughs> yeah. No wonder he didn't There will be to, no man <laughs> between me and my... Anti- yeah. How dare he call her mine? It it's like yeah. his spirit's going back. It's great. <laughs> like that, I guess. It yeah. was all set up with a, oh, goody. <laughs> you know, yeah. something tragic or awful's going to happen. This will be entertaining. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that wolf story that was so entertaining. <laughs> you can recreate Jim's a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Monster squad. We solved this problem. <laughs> yeah. We know who belongs on the Monster Squad. (laughs) Jim goes in the Monster Squad. There we go. We don't even have to read something wicked this way comes. Yeah. Something wicked this way came. It was Jim. Jim. (laughs) To get us back on track, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That that, 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 gets us back to Pavel and Peter. Yes. So we know them. They're the melon-eating guys. They're... The weird guys, the brother, the ones I reminded they like the details like that are just yeah awesome. the melons. She does instance. do a lot of stuff like that. That she'll let the story tell itself. You'll get these conversations and these memories. And then he'll just like the moon is outside and it's on the trees, and he just watched the windmill shadow, and then that's the way the chapter ends. He doesn't like try to tie it up for you and make you have some revelation with him. Right? He doesn't mm-hmm. try to give you the revelation. Instead, he's just he just watches objects. Right. And that's. And so she is good at stuff like that. Like there's one that the one where he sees the horse where they where Otto thinks that the Indians rode around it or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it looks different in the snow. It's just those nice little details like that really add a lot. And she's good at that. And then she calls that back at some point with the so, with the wagon trails. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. The old roads that are just like that with the new roads in place. Yeah. yeah. So, so those nice details. She's good at finding those that just help add reality to the book. Yeah. She's a good, she's a good writer. And so with Pavel and it's the melon, him scrubbing the laundry really hard. Mm-hmm. But then you get that story about them with the wolves. Is it right before? Or? Yeah. It's, it's pretty soon before. It's before Mr. Shemerita kills himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so th- that's trying to pull out the theme in that first part of the book about, so some people do horrible things. Does that make them horrible people? Right. And that's the thing that Jim's trying to really struggle with in the first part of the book, which I think is then echoed in the last part of the book with, you know, she gets pregnant, she fornicates with this guy, but does that, did that really make her a horrible girl? So, and that is one of the questions in the book. I think Kather doesn't think that it made Shemerita a horrible person that he shot himself. You think she's actually, there's no ironic distance between what Kather's saying and what Jim's saying? I think there's a little bit. But I think for the most part, she sympathizes quite a bit with Jim. So Antonia is based on somebody that Willa Cather knew. And I'm pretty sure that her dad committed suicide. Okay. Yeah, he did. I mean, I think the basic, you know, arc of her life, including getting pregnant out of wedlock and then ending up with a baby and by herself and then getting married, all that stuff is point of that is that if Cather is, is remembering these real people, probably pretty trustworthy to think that Jim's perspective on it's hers. I got the sense that Jim's perspective, she wasn't being overly ironic. I didn't think she was being hugely ironic. I just thought it was an interesting question to ask because like he feels no sadness whatsoever about Miss. It's all sentiment and kind of uh, mystical thoughts and sort of a, well, a learning experience when Mr. Seymour dies, which is how a kid might process it. He's only nine or something. So there's never really a death that's sad in the book or impactful that way, is there? Peter and Rup- Pavel's story is the closest we have to any negative emotion of that sort. Or the death of the professor, maybe. Yeah, but that's so brief. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it is there, and it is meaningful, but it's brief. Yeah, and then you get the Cutter's death. <laughs> that was a very Dickensian kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. let's just wrap this story up with a little... The way everybody expected the it. The way everybody... Change. Yeah, it's just like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. pretty awesome. I like that. I liked that all the stories uh, ended. Uh true annoying modernist would have just ended the book without the last section because you've reached that point poignant Antonia's all alone in the world and the world has whatever and Jim and her looking into the land it's kind of got that existential kind of feel that we've encountered so often on the bookening but she doesn't end it there she ends it in a way that I initially found to be kind of confusing actually because I was so expecting there to be some grand romantic gesture whether a good one or a bad one or a not necessarily a love romantic but just something big like he plays their jazz song while she watches and then he nods exactly <laughs> I read I read this on vacation a lot of it in the car mm-hmm. I was uh, really struggling to not lose. I cried 
at the end of the pioneer woman's story. The, As the, our readers know, I, I cry at just about everything. Yeah, it's the end of book four. So yeah, that's the really that's what we were just talking about the place where any modern would end it. And then you're like, oh, this last section's book five is gonna slay me. And Absolutely, it, it, what I thought and expected. I was like, I, I came to the, that point and I thought, I, I, I thought a couple thoughts. One was okay. I hope I like this ending. I don't want to have to like do what we did about with with Mark Twain and say, well, she should have ended the book earlier. And I'm terrified to read the rest of this in the car with my kids and to just freak them out by totally losing it <laughs> because of how emotional the end of four made me. And then we get this sort of like, what would you call it? Just a prosaic sort of, it's not sentiment. It's not sentimental. That's why I think it must mean something. I think it must be important. I mean, it's, it's an interesting choice. It's definitely not the choice that I expected or that you expected. Yeah. I don't know that she's trying to say anything deeply profound. In some sense, this is a very, here's the story kind of a book. And so I'm not trying to say that Jim reaches any kind of particular grand self-awareness or anything or has a big revelation at the end. Some but kind I, of cathartic yeah. experience. But I do think it's interesting that, that it's kind of sentimental and that it's a happy ending. Like you could have the grand romantic despairing, very sentimental ending where Antonia is just going to die basically or I don't know mm-hmm. what it would even be. But, you know, the the Camille style, they can't be together, but an O isn't life sad and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead you get a sort of... In- life goes on but not in life goes on in a rip your heart out no kind of way but yeah she actually like she brings you back up to something of an even keel and so if brandon's saying that jim and cather are well aligned in what they're saying then it does kind of give me a little bit more hope for jim because he's just saying you know what i went and i saw antonia and we didn't have a grand passionate affair and she was older but she still had that special something i don't i don't think that jim's wife would necessarily be unhappy to learn that that's what had happened. Certainly Antonia's husband doesn't seem jealous of him. No, he just seems to understand that Antonia is one of those ladies that's going to have some special relationships like that because she's got a lot of life. And I don't want to say that you should, you definitely should not commit adultery. We'll start there. Uh, I'm against it, guys. Okay. A hundred percent. You got to be careful how you have relationships with women, but blah, blah, blah. Nuance, nuance, nuance. There are people that are vibrant and have a lot to give and have special relationships with people. I mean, Antonia, I know people like that. And I have people like that from my past. I mean, I can think of women, I can think of two in particular, that I just share things with in a special sort of a we went to school. And it's nothing that I moon over. It's nothing I would ever write a book, you know, called My Woman X about. You're about to name names. (laughs) (laughs) I think, like, there's nothing weird there. It's, yeah, it's, it's the past. Yeah. It happened. You can't change the fact that those past relationships have happened. It doesn't matter. And it's so, in the past. <laughs> I thought of that line, yeah. I, I have relationships like that, too. There are girls, for one reason or another, you share a lot of life with and develop an intimacy. And if you're a pansy, sexually depraved, narcissistic jerk, which we know you're not, then your wife but, would have reason to worry about those women. But conceivable that you would have those relationships and that they would even be special and that your wife would have absolutely nothing to worry about. I do try to keep my distance from those women and those relationships now. It would be kind of weird to write a... Uh, it would be awful. I mean, I, that's sort of how I process Yeah, you've Jim, had is those relationships. These, like, either these close relationships, either with girls that I grew up with and mm. went all the way through, or girls that I became friends with in college or whatever, and to be fixated on them to the level that Jim is here would for me, it would be a really awful, yeah, horrible I've, thing. And so I've, I put distance in those relationships, you know, and I've spent time thinking yeah, you know, that, that a lot I of agree, the intimacy that we shared wasn't, you know, wasn't appropriate and wasn't wasn't good or healthy. But then, you know, it was what it was. And, and I don't want to say it was all bad either. Well, yeah. And then, I mean, uh, if be careful here, I'm going to get myself in another uh, Orient Express situation. I'm, I don't think that you should stab a guy 12 times and then not report it to the police. And I don't think that you should write a weird 240-page book about some woman who's not your wife about how cool you think she is. But And I don't think that Marlo... Uh, no, I do think that Marlo should have told Mrs. Uh, Kurtz or whatever. So there. You guys happy? Moralistic prudes. Um, oh, man, maybe. No, this book's not creepy at all. There. 
Yay! If you really think about it too hard, it's not creepy. <laughs> if you think about it too hard, it is creepy. Oh. <laughs> if you think about it at the appropriate amount, then you think, you know what? I got to give Catherine the conceit of a book written in the first person by this guy. Yeah. And if I take that away, I don't have a book. So if you just, yeah, if you just think about it as though he's just sitting there telling you the story. Yeah. Instead of the fact that he's actually writing this down. And then came in and was like, here's my manuscript, <laughs> random friend. It's about my Antonia, you know. Then that gets a little weird. Then that gets a little weird. But if you just pretend the introduction doesn't happen. Right. And he's just sitting there and he's thinking about his past. Then it's something that we've all felt. Because we all have those relationships. However it might be. I had a best friend growing up. He took up flying planes and then died in a plane crash. You know, occasionally you think about... The past that you had with this guy and Mm -hmm. like you know you imagine you can imagine when you go back to texas and you see his house when like we used to fly rockets out there and it's that sort of stuff yeah yeah and that's the level that you're supposed to approach this i think so it doesn't really do the book much good for us to spend too much time worrying about the appropriateness of jim's i have a certain friend that i grew up with when we don't really talk much but when i get back with him there's just that incommunicable past Mm -hmm. right that you have with this person and so yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just inevitable. Be friends and be able to pick up where you yeah. left off. What I think is maybe nice about the ending from a character perspective is that this was all I was trying to say earlier. Maybe it'll make more sense now in that context. There are those people with whom all you have is the incommunicable past. And so it's really awkward to see them again because you have absolutely nothing else. And then there are those people with whom you still have something. And that's usually <laughs> going to be a mark of maturity or a mark of a good relationship is, oh, it's, we don't just Things get together and trade stories. But you know what? I'd actually like to take your kids hunting. I actually like to spend time with your husband. I can be Uncle Jake. Yeah. Or whatever. And yeah, we'll always have the past. And sure, we probably wouldn't be friends without it. But also, this is nice, you know? There's something good about that. I think it's a sweet way to end their relationship. If we just look at this with from a sort of God's eye perspective and forget about the fact that it was it's this creepy first-person narrative or whatever, it's not... <laughs> I think that Willa Cather wanted us to look at it this way. Right. And she didn't want us to make, and I don't think she was thinking too much about. Yeah, no. I think if we had her in the room talking right now, she'd be like, oh yeah, I guess that is a little bit (laughs) creepy. Right. But but when you're in there, it's the magic of the suspension of disbelief or whatever they wanted. Right. The suspension of belief. The the, the (laughs) suspension of disbelief, yeah. Well, then I think you can also really, okay, you can line up on the one side, the whole introduction and the, I'm going to write this thing about this woman and I visited her hometown. She's never been back, but I've been to where she, all all that stuff, you you can line that up over here. Even (laughs) if you line, even if you line all that up over here, over on the other side of that, maybe balancing it out is Jim's an orphan with no mom and dad, just his grandparents. And you know, she's a sister. It's like, she's a sister. She's a mother. And when he has his sexual fantasies, they're about Lena. And he's sort of like... And he, he's he feels he's like, weird that they're not about... He kind of wishes they were about Antonia, but they're not. And he doesn't quite know why. And then we have the other scene where, where he kisses where her. Where he kisses her and she's just like... She shuts it right down like she would, she would never think she of him that never way. never kiss me that way again. Yeah. She said... I think she actually says it's wrong for you to kiss me that way. Yeah. And he's not deflated by it. No, I mean, it's interesting. What actually that, happens is he's elated by it. He's like, yes. Well, and, I, and I've felt the... Maybe I'm an idiot, but I think there's probably a lot of idiots like me who are who would who would expect there to be some kind of discussion of why he doesn't marry her once once she's knocked up by absolutely jerk face. Um, it's what and, and, and I sort of expected. I, I didn't think that it was going to be like I didn't. I knew they weren't going to end up together, so I thought maybe it'd be like a grand romantic. Oh no, Jim, you can't. You have to do better. Or a no, like you know. I mean, I just thought it was going to be something, or at least we both sat there and looked at the sun and thought about how we couldn't. But instead, it's just like it's not even on the table right because they're they have like a brother sister kind of a relationship or a family kind of right relationship. It's, it doesn't present itself as an option you you reading it you think jim marry the woman right but it doesn't seem to be an option to either of them and that's what like you know when she shuts him down after he kisses her you know and he's goes away happy he's like yeah she's what that meant to him was that they actually do still have a special relationship that's not like her relationship with the boys that she dances with or right. whatever. It's that sisterly, really relationship. I I'm picking up what you're laying down, and I'm like, me too. 
and Brandon has two. I'm picking it up. <laughs> there is evidence for that psychopath serial killer thing. If he is an unreliable narrator. <laughs> Very unreliable, she, as it turns she out. She pretends not to recognize him when he comes out to visit. Right. Because she's terrified. <laughs> right. <laughs> wants him to leave the one really perceptive boy runs away from him like when he sends the postcards she only responds by writing her children's names down (laughs) (laughs) she knows and she's terrified she stays away yeah as much as she can Mm -hmm. yeah his grandparents just disappear yeah (laughs) as they start to get close she sabotages her relationship at the house that he's able to be Mm -hmm. familiar with and goes someplace that he can never come then sets him up to be murdered murdered (laughs) (laughs) by wick cutter (laughs) wow yeah i think that we've just done a revisionist reading of this book (laughs) yeah it's probably probably the the uh queer theory reading of the book no, I like we it. We are now queer theorists. Do you think that Tiny and Lena, like that bogus story about Tiny making a fortune, Jim, she's probably just rotting on the, <laughs> the Bundren farm somewhere. <laughs> the Bundren. The, the, the Burden farm, whatever. This is and Jake and Otto. This is oh, and Jake and Otto, awesome. yeah. <laughs> they disappear. Right. Everybody who just disappears. <laughs> they were his first victim. Right. They were his first. We didn't get another left. Yeah. He liked killing that snake. That's right. That was probably his first taste of death right, right. there. Or his, no, actually. His Garden of Eden moment. Right. Probably his parents. <laughs> right. <laughs> he started young. Like a little Kathy. <laughs> Set him ablaze. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I think this is a wonderful theory. <laughs> and definitely what the bookending thinks. Two questions. Question number one. What is the attractiveness of a book like this? Like... Why is it compelling to read this story for us, not for Jim? I mean, I know why Jim loves it because he lived it, but we sort of feel the same nostalgia or whatever. Why? For me, it's a making of America kind of thing. There's a, there's a passage at some point where Jim's musing about Antonia, and maybe it's also he's musing about sort of these women, and he said he's calling them the fountainheads of a new race of people or whatever the generations mm. that will emerge generations. And this is Willa Cather's vision for what, what's great about America and what America is and what about what America should be. And it's holding each of these families, these immigrant families, they, they actually, they don't give up their roots and their distinctiveness. They hold them. I mean, Antonia is still making special bohemian things at the end, but they're finding a way to live together. These communities are finding a way to live together. I think part of what's compelling about it is just this, you come away loving America. (laughs) Uh, 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 It gives, for me at least, this is a Midwestern American heritage that is kind of beautiful Mm -hmm. and you can kind of believe in and buy into. Well, the funny thing about that aspect of it is that I felt that aspect most deeply as I was beginning this book. I was just kind of like, okay, I was feeling some of what you're talking about. Like, this is going to be a story about America. Where it all coalesced for me were two things. The story of Russian Peter and Pavel, the bridal, the the fateful night with the bridal party, and then Mr. Shimerda shooting himself really... It well, brought that stuff to life. It's like that it was wasn't America to you. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was America. No, it, it, it was the fact that it's not Little House on the Prairie. It's not whitewashed. It's not whitewashed. Yeah. It's like Mrs. Mr. Shimerda had some kind of a happy life, and his wife was forward looking and brought them to this land. And then he shot himself. And then there's this, these crazy reversals of fortune where his family's actually like, if he just made it through the winter, he, and then if he just made it to town, he could have played his violin for the dancing pavilion. Maybe that's a little bit of what the the wedding party story is, these crazy twists of fate and what you do to survive and how you end up processing it. It brought it to life like, oh, this is what people actually sacrificed. It wasn't just grandma making bread and we can all smell it like a Laura, like Loring right. Wilder. It was It's the it's not like broad brush, this is Americana beauty. That that would ring hollow and fake for all of us, right? right. But it's all of these individual stories with really dark moments and occasionally bright moments that they all feel like real people. They all feel like it's frozen. And they all feel like she, you know, to get back to a theme that we've sort of dropped a little. It feels like she actually really loves these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she really cares about these people yeah, and I wants think- their stories to be told. That's why this book I love and Gilead I have 
despised. If you think about the way that Cather loves these people, just someone like Otto Fuchs, such a rich, fun, good man to like, you'd love to meet him, you know, Um, and the way she brings him to life. And then you think about Pastor Ames and his weird wife and the, the guy, the sinister guy that's the main you know the john john whatever and his friend who's old and cranky and dying and his family that's about ready for him to die and and his grandfather who is this weird crazy guy and his father who gave up the faith and his brother who gave it's just like it's all kind of i guess beautiful for president obama because it's his favorite book but it's beautiful only if you enjoy the beauty of complete brokenness whereas Willa Cather is actually about like what are the good qualities what what kind of a quality would you have to have had to make made it make it in Nebraska and to have to to find prosperity what what was the generation that came before the prosperous generation what did they have you know the the hired girls all became great wives the little dainty girls now they're the poor people in the town tracing the lineage of those things was interesting am I making any sense or am I just babbling no, you're making sense. It's not all whitewashed. You have the multi potatoes and the hard winter that they had. And then you have the mom, Mrs. Shimerda, who isn't a nice character at all. I don't really think she ever got a redeeming moment, really. It, except when she, I guess she fell and tried to kiss the grandfather's hand when right. he gave her the cow. But even then, she was just a na- kind of a nasty woman. Mm. There was nothing really redeeming about her. I don't know. No, I wouldn't say so. I thought perhaps that in the same way that Mr. Shimerda was a what Jim could be if he decided to just let his nostalgia destroy him, you know, if he just wanted to be eaten up by it and turned it into despair. Mrs. Shimerda was maybe a what Antonia could be if she decided to be bitter and lose that light and just survive and like that she's able to have a much more difficult life than her mother actually had, but not become her mother is maybe her crowning achievement as a yeah. it, it, it's, she's not broken by anything that it speaks well of, that she, she really does have that inner light that jim sees and then the ability and she just she has to work because that's how you right survive and that's what makes you know these women beautiful to jim and they his just, grandfather sorry? and his grandfather and his grandfather that's that, right yeah. is the, these are just they're good women and they're they're gonna work and they're gonna take care of it, and they're resilient women yeah, the thing about the way that Cather does it is, you know, I, I've, you know, it's dumb to say this because the whole book is like, this is, these are my memories. I keep wanting to say that it reads like, like a memory. Mm-hmm. What I, what I guess I mean by that is, Jim remembers the kinds of things that you would remember if you loved these people and cared about these people. It's, it yeah. feels natural and right and real whether it's the description of of otto and his scar or you know and his weird thing going on with his ear or if it's like when you, when you have when you have these precious memories that you uh, hold and that you rehearse because they mean something to you then i i feel like these are this is the kind of shape that it, it takes on the degree to which he knows people they the the people that seem like caricatures are the people that seem like caricatures in real life. Like in my memory, you know, I have my whip cutters with their crazy stories, but I didn't know them that well. You know, I just knew a couple of crazy things that I heard about them. Because he tried to murder him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's some, some of, uh, maybe I've said this on the, on this podcast before, some of my most vivid memories from my childhood are from the age of like five or six and below. Right. And, the reason is because at age six, that's when my parents divorced and I held on to those memories tightly and I rehearsed those memories and I can still, I can tell you what the sun looked like and I can tell you what the, the sound of the wind in the trees. I can, there's so much that is vivid and strong and stark in my memory about those years because I, I love them and I rehearsed them, you know, I rehearsed them through my childhood. And so when you have something, you know, you have a place that means as much as Nebraska is meant to Jim, you have people that have meant as much as Lena and Antonia and the Shimerdas and uh, whoever else mean to him, then it just, it just, it, it feels really natural and uh, inevitable. And you have these moments like the, the, the scene with the play, you know, or the, the Ray Charles right. slash Stevie Wonder when he shows up. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was amazing. Like the detail of, the description is like here's a here's a blind black piano player and she's describing Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder to us like yeah, yeah. the swaying the smile mm-hmm. the everything 
the kind of subservience even. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the whole backstory to him is pretty wonderful too. Yeah. His backstory is wonderful. Yeah. Um, she's got kind of three qualities that I think make a really strong novelist. Her style is, is perfect for the, what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, she's really good at writing. <laughs> she's able to find those details that really, so when you were mentioning Otto, it's the little paper things that he had yeah. kept for the tree, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah really, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Or just the way that Jake told the mom that it was a lady's privilege to get the last word. Mm-hmm. That just that said a lot about his character right there, that just that one statement he made. So she has that, but then she also has empathy for her characters, which is something that you want to see a novelist have. And so Dickens, even though his characters are caricatures, he has empathy for his characters. Mm-hmm. And she has empathy for her characters. She really loves them. And she, well, and the ones that she hates, she really hates. Right. <laughs> they get their just reward. And in some sense, that is a very Dickensian thing oh, yeah, to do. Oh, yeah, it's totally Dickensian, yeah. I think you said it earlier that it was a Dickensian thing to do. Right? Yeah, well, the I think I said the ending for Whipcutter and um, whatever just felt like But it. just wanting the characters to not just, to, to wanting them to have an end, wanting us to know where they are going to end up is um, a sign of empathy in the novel. Even Ambrose is almost never a sympathetic character, but you do get that one moment where he forks over a couple hundred dollars and, you know, and the pioneer woman is proud of him. And And so it's not just the author having empathy, though it's them trying to teach the reader to also have empathy. And so that's what she, even though they may have failed, it's what was she was trying to do with the story of the wolves and also the suicide she first lets you know these guys and see them eating the melons and see them working in their yards and seeing them being loud and friendly and trying to find the trinkets to amuse the children. And then you get the story about what they did. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, you're supposed to live in that tension. Mr. Shimerda, you get that moment where you get a couple of moments where him, where Antonia and Jim come across him in the fields and he's real sad. He does that weird thing where he's going to give Jim his gun. And you know, he has his whole past and he's been taken by his wife from this place where he was respected and then then he kills himself and so you're supposed to really learn sympathy it's very similar actually what this is reminding me of is well jane austen has this sort of empathy mm-hmm. obviously shakespeare has this empathy but then um steinbeck has it too mm-hmm. yeah for all his characters mm-hmm. when you said she wants her readers to have empathy to teach them empathy for these characters i remember in the back of my book you know that hl Mencken quote that yeah, yeah. you read earlier i think it uh, it's here uh in full what it made me realize it's a little (laughs) patronizing but what it made me realize is she's living in new york and she's writing nobody else or not many people are writing and humanizing these these people of the prairies and so this is what minkin says i know of none that make the remote folk of the western prairies more real than my Antonia and makes them seem better worth knowing. Beneath the swathings of balderdash, the surface of numb scullery and illusion, the tawdry stuff of Middle Western culture with a K, she discovers human beings embattled against fate and the gods and into her picture of their dull struggle she gets a spirit that is genuinely heroic and a pathos that is genuinely moving it is not as they see themselves that she depicts them but as they actually are to representation she adds something more there is not only the story of poor peasants flung by fortune into lonely and hospitable wilds there is the eternal tragedy of man yeah and so yeah this like He's trying to praise her for that. Right. I, Thanks yeah. a lot, Willa Cap. You really <laughs> brought our tawdry Midwestern numb scullery to life. I, I really I, gave it some dignity. I, the oh. other day, I, I don't remember how, I, I think it was on Facebook originally. Apparently there's this app, a dating app that is about uniting people over what they hate because yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have a stronger relationship with with common hatreds instead of common interests. And so it's called hater or something like that. And they, they've mapped, you know, states by what they hate the most. And uh, Colorado hates in sync. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, which is... <laughs> Who hated porn? There was one that hated... Nevada. Nevada. Nevada yeah. hates porn. No, no, Utah hates porn and Nevada hates feminism. Michigan is the, the those are good. Michigan is the enemy of the bookening. I hear that I declare Michigan, war on Michigan. Michigan hates Pride and Prejudice the most. Wow. <laughs> Stupid Michigan. <coughs> New Hampshire hates God. Hmm. Indiana, by the way, hates bloggers. Bloggers. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's some pretty funny, look, go look it up or I tweeted it out. What does Texas hate? Texas hates people who sleep with the windows open. Huh. Yeah, mosquitoes. 
um, <laughs> uh, but but um, and the map's very poorly drawn. Like Alabama never touches the Gulf. <laughs> the pan- Florida Panhandle just extends all the way to Mississippi. But it's it's uh, it's either Rhode Island or Massachusetts, and it's kind of hard to tell. I th- I'm pretty sure it's Rhode Island. Midwesterners. They hate Midwesterners. Mm-hmm. Midwesterners. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's still that sort of like you know look at a map of who voted for Trump and who voted for Hillary county by county you have the coastal elites and then you have the flyover states the midwest yeah and so cather was very much a midwesterner living among the coastal elites and i did feel that i did feel the warm glow of i don't want to say validation or it felt good that she was in Otto Fuchs's corner and Jake's yeah. corner. Like they were good men. They were never going to get married. They were gonna, never going to accomplish anything. They were never going to be able to even build a house. They were just always going to be transient. But she knew what was good about that kind of a guy. And she showed it to us. And it was it was nice. Yeah. And if she made uh, some New York men long for a Midwestern woman, mm-hmm. wife, she did a good thing. Yeah. She did a good thing. Mm-hmm. You think I should marry a... Midwesterner? Yeah. (laughs) Probably going to happen, right? It is what I love about my Nana, my stepmother's mom, farm girl. And she's tough and she's no nonsense. And she works hard. She's worked hard her whole life. And she would, she'd give you a hell if you told her that she was feminine, but she sure is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's another annoying thing about those people that smoke pipes and read Wendell Berry, because their whole idea of femininity is lacy skirts and dresses and uh, the, the, the townsfolk. And, of... Yeah, the, that's what they want to recreate is some stupid. But there's nothing, you know. I'm sure every feminist critic has tried to turn this into a story of female empowerment. But actually, a good Christian wouldn't be surprised by any of the women in this book. They would, wouldn't be like, "Oh, what? What? A woman can." Do the well, things that Antonia did. We have very feminine women at our church who are a lot like these pioneer, hardworking women. And we got some of those frilly princess types. Yeah, we do. <laughs> they should read my Antonia. And toughen up. And toughen up. Princess. Yeah. Life is work, princess. It's what I love about my wife. She's a, she's a good mid, Midwestern woman. She's a hardworking woman, and, but not ruined. Where does your where's your wife is your wife Brandon? Where does she is she a shrieking a shrinking violet of femininity? <laughs> like, do you have to get out the smelling salts when a mouse oh, yeah, runs across the, her all the time? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> or is she like a tough? She's, uh, a, she, she's a hard worker. Is she a Texan? She's from Texas. Yeah, we're all hard workers in Texas, sure. No, I mean she keeps our house clean and takes care of five kids. I'm, she's a hard worker. Has she ever murdered anyone like Jim? No. Burden? No, she hasn't. <laughs> As far as I'm aware. <laughs> Who did we decide that he murdered? Oh, Mr. Shimurda. Oh, he murdered. Yeah, he just blew his brains out in the barn. Yeah. It was the axe. It was yeah. the axe. It fit perfectly. Oh, that's right. That was the little twist. And then he just went It home. read too many detective stories. Mm-hmm. Too much Agatha Christie. Yeah, too much Agatha Christie. One might argue that even one book of Agatha Christie is too much. <laughs> Uh-oh, Danny's left the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll let Danny have the last word. A gentleman, what is what did Jake say? A gentleman always lets the lady have the last word. A gentleman always lets the lady have the last word, Danny, if you're listening. So whatever the last thing you said about Murder on the Orient Express, that was the word. Good job. All right, final question. All right. That's a stupid final question. What was your favorite part? (laughs) Oh, man. I think this is a this is a completely legitimate question because this book, like we said, it's like a bunch of short stories or it's like a great concept album with a bunch of different cool songs and some of them might be more maybe you're more of a bridal party gets thrown to a wolf kind of a man, or maybe you're a Antonio and Jim's watch the plow shadow sink into the ground kind of a guy or <laughs> Am I allowed to say, am I allowed to say the whole thing though? Cause that I mean <laughs> I you know, I don't know I don't know that there's been a book that we've read that I have found more start to finish moment by moment in just enjoyable to read. Not even Russian politics. What? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom so, Sawyer showing up. Anna Karenina can't fit that bill. What about the jungle book? <laughs> oh yeah. What about the jungle book? <laughs> Ricky Tiki Tabby was good. What about a midsummer night's dream? <laughs> 
Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know. Nathan was always accusing me of having recency bias, so... I've never accused you of that on the booking, I don't think. No, but off but, mic, you always do. Right. Um, but not never about, never even on the, about anything booking related, just mostly about... Mostly movies. The fact that you think Spider-Man's the best Marvel movie. Which oh, it, I, I agree with that sentiment. Well, guess what? You are... What? Recency biased. No, I just think that it is. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely near the top, if not the top. I came home and told Anna that it was the best. Better than the Jungle Book? What? I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> so, moments, if, if I'm supposed to find my favorite, yes. pick a favorite part. Pick a favorite. I know what mine is. Well, you better go ahead and say it because I don't want to take it. I want to know what your moment is. My favorite moment? is when they go and see the play. Maybe it's just because Lena. I... What's that? He and Lena? Yeah. I uh, Maybe it's just because I haven't actually stood and watched a plow shadow go into the sunset or, or a Russian man die, or but maybe it was just the most relatable to me. But just that idea of experiencing live theater that way, the communal experience, the, which is the way she brought it to life. The fact that the actress was too old, past her prime, but that it was still blew his mind and redefined his world and felt like the most exciting thing ever. That was just a fun, relatable thing for me. I mean, we've talked about things like that, you know, in our baggage check. We've, ta- we've talked about how like, well, maybe I'll say we will be talking about a book that completely blew my mind. And when we talk about something wicked this way comes, it's a book that I don't I've not reread. I've actually tried to reread it and failed to finish it since then. I don't know if it's any good or not. Drake tells me it is because he's read it by this point. It just captured live performance. It captured an era without TiVo, as I think maybe Jake pointed out off mic at some point. The thing that maybe I think I pointed out off mic is that the closest thing that people have today is Game of Thrones, which is stupid because Game of Thrones is full of sex and violence, and I don't watch it, and neither should you. But it's the closest thing that we have to a communal, we have to wait for it, and then we all watch it and talk about it afterwards. But even there, once it comes out, you can fast forward it, you can rewind it. You're not watching some actress that passed her prime play Mrs. Lannister or whatever on the Game of Thrones. You're you're only getting... You're getting the one stop. You know, the show was performed in New York and then a traveling core of maybe the understudies go and then they play 12 nights in Chicago and then... Yeah, I guess for us it would be like if some dopey... Hamilton. Third generation of Hamilton, yeah, if, if, if they came to town. And Which if, we do uh, of get Of course, that. it wouldn't be Lin-Manuel Miranda. It'd be some other guy. And We get that. Yeah, IU Auditorium will, you know... When, yeah, we will. When, the, when Hamilton travels and plays Chicago, IU Auditorium will bring Hamilton down for one night or two nights. Well, it's already played nights. Chicago. We're going to get, like, third run. The point is, if you took your kid to see Hamilton, they'd be just as blown away by it as any kid is, has been by it. And apparently, I've not seen Hamilton because I'm not—I don't have thousands of dollars. But they'd have that same experience where it's like you're not even seeing anything close to the ideal version of this. But it doesn't matter. It's your—it's yours. She really captured something with that scene. I thought that resonated for me. Yeah, I love that scene too. On the one hand, I don't want to live in a world without you know Netflix and whatever else. But on the other hand, I really felt like, man, that would have been really cool to live in a time when, yeah, it was that one, there was the one play in town or there was that one musician that came and he played. And then, you know, because you don't hold it cheaply, like, yeah, you know, like uh, I, I have Spotify. I, I have all the world's music yeah, just pretty much all time at my fingertips. Alexa, just play and I can me just blow it whatever off. concerto Bach spent right? years ago is my music to write booking notes to. Right. I, I just blow it off and not pay any attention. Mm-hmm. I don't have to remember it. I don't have to savor it, think about it in one ear, out the other. It's what I listen to while I'm working on yeah, booking notes or driving yeah, my or, kid to soccer practice or whatever it is, you know? And it's just cheap. I mean, I think about it when people say, I hear mostly people a generation below us, our younger siblings would say say something like, um, well, I liked the movie, but after the fifth time, it really didn't hold up. And it's, it's always strange to me that that's like, in their minds, that's a valid a way of thinking of something is that for it to really prove its value, it has to be something that is repeatable and can just live with you all the time. And it's like, 
no, nobody actually, thought about nobody things ever that thought way about until that. you know when Walt Disney made Snow White, years. he made it so that you could go see it once and it would be this event, and then every twenty years maybe Snow White three or four times in your life and it would be because it came back to the theaters because it was a really popular beloved thing and you'd go and you'd take your family and you'd see it it wasn't designed it just wasn't designed to work the way that people think it was it was designed to work like theater worked right it was a performance there's a you're able to capture a monochromatic like across the board performance right but yeah i mean they used to have live orchestras in movie theaters for goodness sake just a very very unique world we live in What's your favorite? I, I mean, I think Hamilton is a, Hamilton's a good comparison yeah. because from what I understand, there are no taped performances of it, right? right. No, there's not. If you're going to see it, you're going to see it when it's performed live. Be cool I mean, I think that, that sort of thing you're talking about is the reason that reading this would be good for a modern person because it helps you realize that your past is that incommunicable past or whatever. You're not going to get it back. You can't put it on repeat like you can your Spotify. And I never, yeah, you, you don't think how your technology changes the way that you look at reality in your world. But I do think that it, a lot of just teaching undergrads, I think a lot of them have their present. And it's good just because they're teenagers still, but it's all cheapened for them. Mm-hmm. They don't think about it at all, right? They just, they just think about now. What can they have? What can they consume now? I was thinking about this last week when we were, or whenever you listener <laughs> experienced this part of the recording of... Uh, of Shakespeare, you're talking about, you know, Shakespeare's London was like 200,000 or 300,000 people. Yeah. He's a craftsman and his job is to, they had some money actually, everybody did and they could go out and they could go see a play. And it was an event and you went out and you went to the Globe and you saw the play and it wasn't going to live beyond that. That was the culture that he he performed in. Well, I was thinking about my hometown, Evansville, Indiana is to 300,000 people, same size as Shakespeare's London. There's never going to be, not just because it's Southern Indiana, but there's never going to be, Evansville's never going to have its Shakespeare because there's Hollywood. You know, there's not Mm -hmm. like this world where you're trying to, uh, the the place where we have this kind of local Mm -hmm. communal experience, the closest we do have is like Game of Thrones. What's the one thing that everybody's watching or the Super Bowl or... yeah. You know, in a world of McDonald's, is your town isn't necessarily going to have an awesome local butcher. You know, I mean, it's just like once you've commercial. I mean, not to be a grumpy old man about it. I I like McDonald's. I like I don't like Game of Thrones, uh, but I, I like Alexa and the fact that she can play me any song. I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I love that Mozart spent his lifetime making some stuff that's now Alexa can just call up for me like I'm some sort of Greek god. Aladdin. I love the power (laughs) in your face, Mozart. You thought you were writing something important, but it's just a cheap thing to help me write bookending notes, buddy. I just get my little genie Alexa to summon it up, and then I laugh at your grave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um there was a scene that reminds me of all not the latin but the <laughs> the shakespeare comment you were making oh it's when gaston cleric he's talking about that line from virgil and how what virgil really wanted with patria was to take his art back to his actual hometown yeah <clears throat> not the country of rome but his city right yeah. and how much you have invested in your city like mm-hmm. yeah like my hometown of burleson there's a lot of memory there I don't want to go back and be their poet, but, <laughs> but you're right. That wouldn't work. You couldn't do it now unless you but were Stephen Wouldn't Spielberg. it be nice if even dorky little towns had their poet laureate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? It would be. I don't know. It's a nice thought. <laughs> you do have some old little societies. And I'm going to go sit small. on my pipe or on my porch and smoke my pipe. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, Jake's going to go back to Vandenberg <laughs> County. <laughs> Plant some uh, potatoes and be their poet laureate. Yeah. Take my Rosie and Evans settle in the Shire. And you have your poet now. <laughs> <laughs> there once was a man named Jake. <laughs> You're just going to write uh, lyrics. <laughs> um. uh, so, all right. The suicides moment was a moment where I thought, okay, this is. There's really in any book that I really like. There's a moment where I'm like, okay, I'm, I trust this person now. They're not going to, they've done something so right that. I can trust this book and just give myself to it. And for me, the, Peter and Pavel were making me like 
think about giving myself to it. But then the suicide was like, okay, this woman is telling a real story. This is not just sentimental Wendell Berry. I've never read Wendell Berry. He's just a placeholder for this whole kind of thing, folks. If you like, I've read Wendell some Barrow, of his poetry fine. and have really liked it. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> so he's great, there. but. Um, He's just our placeholder tonight for the horrible sort of pastoral, not pastoral like a pastor, but like scenery. and Georgings. Yeah. Uh, So I... uh, So yours is the suicide scene. I'm going to go with my favorite moment. We've already talked about this. My quick and done moment is just that bit where he's talking about how much he loves these hired girls and how they become awesome. And they have the rich families now. And they end up having the rich families and being in charge of the big homesteads and all that sort of thing. It's a very nice moment, yeah. I have two. I, <laughs> I was hoping you'd bring up Lena. My favorite scene with her, though, is probably where he's telling her that he's leaving at the end. Mm-hmm. So, But I'm just glad somebody brought her up. But my favorite scene is when Otto and Jake finally do leave, and they're saying their goodbyes. And then that's just that moment where he talks about writing them the letter. Yeah. And then they write back, and then he never hears from them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's where the book kind of got me. Because you have these two characters who were so significant to his childhood. And they're gone. And then they just, yeah, they're gone without even, you don't get them later in the book. They don't come back to like see his children or to see Antonia's children. You don't find out that Jake actually, she doesn't get the stuff that Tiny gets. They don't get that bow on their story. They just disappear and they're gone. Yeah, it's hard. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit what like the reason why a lot of people, were, I think, were really disappointed by the ending of True Grit, the new one as opposed to the the John Wayne in the John Wayne version she goes and she sees John Wayne and he's like I'm still John Wayne hi and then in the in the Cohen brothers one she hears that Jeff Bridges playing the same character is in town and then she did you guys see that movie yeah and it's just kind of sad like a bummer of an ending but it's but Brandon it sure did just make me think about it so I mean it's just what happened she didn't find him or I don't she, remember so she has the big adventure with Jeff Bridges abandoning, yeah, avenging her father but the ending is and then the ending we cut to 40 years later 20 years whatever it is and she's an older lady she hears that Rooster Cogburn is just a town away like she hasn't seen him since she was a girl and she goes to the town and she finds that he's died and she's missed him he was performing in some western rodeo or something Something like that and he got sick you just kind of that, yeah. you have that feeling of the transience of relationships and in, in that time period you know she couldn't just call him on the phone he just he came through her area again and she she missed it you know yeah but it's to that it's, it's what you're saying it's the transience yeah i like that she didn't back away from it no she didn't she's really in some ways not sentimental or at least not in the it's where i think maybe she is a little bit more clear-headed than jim is i'm not sure i never i never quite figured out and probably just reading other novels by her would help me because i which i have not done but what the line between her sentiment for that time and place and jim's was it seems like she's telling a pretty realistic story of the joys and sorrows of the time so well, what happened in that Lena scene that you liked uh, when he says goodbye to her? She's very, she's very Lena about it. Where she says, it seems so natural. I used to think I'd like to be your first sweetheart. You were such a funny kid. She always kissed one as if she were sadly and wisely sending one away forever. We said many goodbyes before I left Lincoln, but she never tried to hinder me or hold me back. You're going, but you haven't gone yet, have you? She used to say. It's just, I don't know. There's something, again, it's just not, it's not sentimental at all. Man, even the, speaking of that whole section, the Lena section, even just that violinist, like her neighbor or whatever yeah. that's in love with her. Like in any other book, that would be a great, fun character that we'd, we'd spend some time talking about. But here it's just like one of, 10,000 rich things Very about this book. Yeah. characters, yeah. We're probably going to get away from this discussion and be like, oh man, we should have talked about this or that. Well, we could, but we could also just sit here and just reminisce about all the characters. Right, yeah. And that is kind of what this is about. You can sit and you can reminisce about all these characters just like you can sit and reminisce about the characters in your own life. Mm-hmm. You there's, don't have to sit and talk about each and every one of them. There's a, there's a certain real resignation about all of these people and all of the relationships and their transients. All, all of them, I guess, except for Antonia. Mm. But there's a meek, humble acceptance that people grow up, people die, people go their own way. Some turn out well, some go bad, some make their fortune. We have this shared incommunicable past that will always connect us. And that is what life is. Life is that. 
princess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it is painful and it's also beautiful. And that's there, where there it is. that's where Gilead feels false or proud or hard or wrong. And I can't really, still haven't quite really put my finger on it. it. But it's really trying. It wants to say that everything's beautiful, but it, I'm not sure that it really has the same except like this has a sort of humility and a sweetness to it that it's like Gilead for all of its surface similarities and all the so- same sorts of things it's going to try to evoke. It just it just doesn't have it. And I don't know why, but it's the difference between thinking Gilead is stupid for me and really liking this book, whatever it is. I wish I knew because it would be a more interesting podcast if I did, but I don't. Uh, Jake, I know that you really liked this book. Brandon, you said you really liked this book. I really liked this book. I'm not quite sure any one of us has said just, what's the thing? Why do we love this book? Why should everyone read this book? I I think it's safe to say Heart of Darkness, sure, but really this is the first book in a while that we've read. Since Anna Karenina. Since Anna Karenina. Can't quite. Emma. You know, Jane Austen somehow always stands outside of all the lists. It's like she just doesn't belong. It's like you don't even think to put her on here. She's just like, it's Jane Austen. Well, there's like, you should read everything Jane Austen wrote, and you should read everything Shakespeare wrote, and therefore they don't count. And therefore let's not even talk about them. Yeah. True. But yeah, probably since uh, Anna Karenina, this is the book that I'm just like, people should read this. Like, you should read this. Like, Yeah, it goes, for me, it goes up there with Anna and East of Eden as these are the books that you want to have read. So you give it the unqualified SOA? Unqualified seal of approval, right? Like rises right to the top. Cream of the crop. Yeah, absolutely. Cream de la creme. Brendan, you give it the USOA, USBOA, seal of booking, UBSOA? You give it the UBSOA? Qualified booking seal of approval. I do. Am I supposed to say why? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as Jake was saying, I think this rises right up to the top. Of the books we've read, it's better than Heart of Darkness, even though I really liked Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness is like, it's great. It's a what it might. But it doesn't get right up there with. It's sorry. not anything that I'd feel compelled to read again right away. You know, this is just one of those books that you I like, I love, you know. Well, she has, like I said, she has those three things that I think a good novel needs to do. She does it really well. Style. Style, empathy, and then just this poetic eye for the detail. The right detail, yeah. And so, and she does it perfectly. And so it gets, it, yeah. It really is. It's it's a masterpiece. It's, it's perfect. It's a perfect novel. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 really it's a fantastic book. You have a lot of sham pretenders trying to do the same thing, and mm-hmm. that's if you really want to get to where Marilyn Robinson fails. It's she tries to do all these same things. She kind of gets the poetic detail. She does for the most part. Mm-hmm. Ends up writing a Pulitzer Prize winning novel or whatever it is she got, and still falls miles short. <laughs> yeah, but her empathy is sour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not the right kind of empathy. Yeah. It's not go. teaching the, you the right kind of empathy. You're, you're saying what I was right. was babbling about. There's yeah. something kind of nasty about her mm-hmm. empathy. Yeah, and her style leaves something to be desired at times. So she doesn't get up there. No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think. Um, what's the? I'm just going to find the quote because I think it would be helpful. Um, She still had that something which fires the imagination, which should stop one's breath for a moment by a look or gesture that somehow revealed the meaning in common things. She had only to stand in the orchard to put her hand on a little crab tree and look up at the apples to make you feel the goodness of planting and tending and harvesting at last. I think that's actually a good description, not of, it is a good description of Antonina herself, but it's also a good description of the book, My Antonia. It has these looks and gestures, these little moments that somehow reveal the meaning in common things. And that's what's lovable. I mean, sure, Conrad's great revealing the meaning of, despair and of darkness and of the brutality beneath all civilization but for someone to be able to find the poetry and the meaning in common things like like a red wheelbarrow like what like a red wheelbarrow like a what red wheelbarrow yeah exactly like uh old what's his face carlos william carlos williams william carlos williams as a special talent uh robert louis stevenson wrote a review of Jane Austen, actually, where he said, here's a lady that writes about boring domestic stuff and lo- makes it great. And her art is so much better than mine because I write about, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, you know, I write about pirates and knights and stuff like that. It's easy to find what's great and exciting and interesting about 
pirates and knights and adventures, but to be able to find the mystery and the humanity and the beauty in commonplace things is a real skill and not an easy one and is one that Willa Cather in this novel had. There's a quote that I think gets at what you're saying and is also a plug for her next book. Okay. This is from Something Wicked This Way Comes. What could he say that might make sense to them? Could he say love was above all common cause, shared experience? That was the vital cement, wasn't it? Could he say how he felt about their all being here tonight on this wild world, running around a big sun which fell through a bigger space, falling through yet vaster immensities of space, maybe toward and maybe away from something? Could he say we share this billion mile an hour ride? We have common cause against the night? You start with little common causes. Why love the boy in a march field with his kite braving the sky? Because our fingers burn with the hot string singeing our hands. Why love some girl viewed from a train bent to a country well? The tongue remembers iron water cool on some long lost noon. Why weep at strangers dead by the road? They resemble friends unseen in 40 years. Why laugh when clowns are hit by pies? We taste custard, we taste life. Why love the woman who is your wife? Her nose breathes in the air of a world that I know. Therefore, I love that nose. Her ears hear music I might sing half the night through. Therefore, I love her ears. Her eyes delight in seasons of the land, and so I love those eyes. Her tongue knows quince, peach, chokeberry, mint, and lime. I love to hear it speaking. Because her flesh knows heat, cold, affliction. I know fire, snow, and pain. Shared and once again shared experience. Billions of prickling textures. Cut one sense away, cut part of life away. Cut two senses, life halves itself on the instant. We love what we know, we love what we are. Common cause, common cause, common cause of mouth, eye, ear, tongue, hand, nose, flesh, heart, and soul. But how to say it. <laughs> but that, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's great. That's the answer to his question. Willa Cather. <laughs> if only someone had been there to tell the guy in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Just read your Willa Cather. You'll understand a little bit more about how humanity works. And the great mystery that is life. The book getting today was written and produced by Nathan Alverson. It was recorded by... <laughs> microphone <Willicator>. by Roland. <laughs> Isn't it a Roland? Yeah. You don't care what kind of technology. Yes, by Roland. Just like Roland Dashlin in The Dark Tower, which is getting terrible reviews. It is slammed. Does it come slammed. out Friday? Another fun so Stephen what? King. What? Does it come out Friday? I think yeah. so. I think it comes out the Friday that we're recording this, and it's like 18% Rotten Tomatoes. It's like midnight tonight. After yeah. midnight. In one hour. Maybe we'll all be going to see, after this recording of Willa Cather, the premiere opening night of The Dark Tower. I doubt it, though. Talk real fast and you can just slow it down. <laughs> yeah, we'll just talk real fast and we'll slow down. But you can see the Emoji movie. Oh, you want to see the Emoji movie? It's getting really bad reviews. <laughs> it's also getting really bad reviews. Find us on social media and support us on patreon.com forward slash thebookening. Thebookening.